Our second message this afternoon is from the pastor of the Church of God, Big Sandy, Pastor Dave Haber. Well, thank you, and good, good afternoon, everyone. It's always a pleasure to come see you. I also want to say greetings to those on the Internet. Uh, we speak, I speak at the Internet home every week, so I'm used to that. So I wanted to mention, if any of you are just passing through the, the website of the Tulsa Church of God, I'm a guest speaker in, but come back again and visit, because they have a variety of speakers here, and maybe you can gain a lot of good information from the message that they give here. Wanted to mention to you that uh, part of the reason I'm here, of course, is because of the death of Pam Kerr. By the way, you can start putting the handout if you'd like to. Uh, it's really, that's how I met a lot of you, actually. I don't know if our paths would have crossed the same way if it hadn't been for Ray and Pam, uh, who we've known for a lot of years. And then, of course, because of their choir, many of you have come down to sing, and we appreciate that very, very much. We miss you coming down. If you ever do want to come down in small groups of you to come sing, we'll pay for your gas down. We, you, know, you have a good history with our congregation, and I know the choir misses Ray, and now we'll miss Pam. But uh, again, if any of you want to come down, we, we really appreciated them. Uh, they were special people, Ray passing two, over two years ago, and then Pam just passing last week. It's been a, been a difficult time, and uh, again, for both of them, they died early. Uh, surprising to me and uh, I said before at Ray's funeral he was supposed to sing at my funeral so so when he unexpectedly passed it just threw me for a curveball now I get the second curveball here of course my curveball is not nearly as rough as the family uh, who you I know you'll be praying for and be, be thinking of them also it's good to see the Gregory's but it's also good to see the Andrews so you made a nice smooth transition I from what I know anyway the nice thing about guest speaking, I know none of your skeletons. <laughs> I know none of your problems. And by the way, if I happen to talk about something that pokes you, no one told me about anything. So if I talk about someone who's smoking, I don't know that you're smoking. God, may, uh, God knows it, but I don't know it. So I know none of your secrets. You know, I, I have the opportunity to guest speak. I don't know if you knew this. Some of you probably did not know this. I had bypass surgery in February. I had triple bypass surgery. I did not have a heart attack. I was able to find out my arteries were clogged before the heart attack, so my heart is still supposedly in good shape, and my arteries are all clear, and they want me to, the, you know, the doctor wants me to get back to living. But all my wife and my friends are all trying to hold me back. And I, and I will say it this way, my recovery has been phenomenal. I mean, everything's gone so smoothly and that's why people are holding me back, because I would have a tendency to push too hard. My whole life has been to go hard and fast, and good living, clean living, fun living, godly living, but to go hard. And because I'm feeling so well, uh, all my family and all my friends, I know I'm a hardhead, because you, some of you have heard the name Jim Reedus. He was a pastor here. Well, I saw Jim at the funeral, and I, I recognized him and talked, about, talked to him a little bit, and he said, you know, just because you're feeling so well doesn't mean you should go so hard. I thought, I haven't talked to him in three decades. You know? <laughs> so God keeps telling me these, this message. I keep hearing it from everybody. I keep thinking, okay, I'm a hard head. I get it. I'll try not to go too hard. I also want to compliment you on something. You're really wise. You have to make sure the speaker stays on time, you not only have the clock in the back, but you have the clock right here. 
So if, if someone's old and their eyesight's going badly, you have this here to, to take care of it. So you're very, very wise. So anyway, it's good to see you. And when I travel, and I'm starting to get back in my travels, traveling twice a month again, trying to stay closer to home a little bit at first. But if you remember when I come out, when I've been to speak here, and I think the last time I spoke here was 2012. It's been quite a while. But I have two purposes when I speak, the same two purposes every single week, at home or traveling. I want to point you to God, and I want to encourage you. So then I have to decide, I pray about it, what do I say to point you to God and to encourage you? And so, in fact, uh, when I was praying about what I was going to give up here when I talked to Mr. Andrews about the opportunity... You know, I spoke the week after Ron Dart died. It was just accidental. I spoke at CEM. It was accidental because that was scheduled months in advance, and then he passed, and I spoke the next week. The sermon I happened to be had prepared already well in advance for that week was, Where is God when it hurts? And that's a really good sermon to follow up on, sadness, etc. And I got to thinking, is that the kind of thing I want to do? Was that what God, is that a good thing to do after the death of Pam? You know, coming and where's God when it hurts? And interesting enough, as I kept preparing for this message, I didn't go with that more emotional sermon. I did not, which is an encouraging sermon, but I went with a different style of sermon, again, in the overall context of pointing you to God and to encourage you. You know the title of it's been the bulletin, entitled The Tabernacle and Priesthood. So that, in one sense, is not really what you'd call a follow-up to a tragedy or a follow-up to stress. But what it is is actually taking the Bible and looking at the Bible. For some people, who, especially if this is the first time they hear a Church of God message by going on your website, some people may find new information. Some, even if you've been around God's church for many years, you may find new information. But it's not always about new information. It's about taking information we should know and applying it, because I'm, I'm very much into Christian living. Even if I concentrate on material, even if I concentrate on information, the whole thing comes down to what's it matter? Is it changing our life? So maybe today you might, some of the audience who hears this extended audience might hear something a little new for them. If it's not new to you, certainly I want it to be a reminder to help change your life, to make your life better. So the title of the sermon is Tabernacle and Priesthood. <coughs> Excuse me. And one thing you'll find out <coughs> is by the end of the sermon, and you already know it, but I'm going to pound it a couple times. <coughs> Whenever you talk about the tabernacle, you also talk about the priesthood. Whenever you talk about the priesthood, you also talk about the tabernacle. They're really not separated. That's why we put the material here. Now for this sermon, I want to mention, so... I'd like to know, you know, my frame of reference. You, you like to identify terms. In some sermons, you don't always agree with the terms. But you, I want you to know where I'm coming from. So in this sermon, we're going to identify two main sections of the book of Exodus. We're not going to spend a lot of time in the book of Exodus. We're actually going to spend a lot of time in the book of Hebrews. But by the way, again, for those on the Internet, this congregation is a New Testament church. They love the New Testament. They love the New Covenant. However, they greatly value the Old Testament because they realize that much of the messages that Jesus magnified had their origins from the Old Testament. So if you're wondering, is this an, if you're passing by, is this a New Testament congregation? Oh, it most certainly is. 
with a great appreciation for the Old Testament. Because when we talk about, we talk from the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews magnifies things that were written in the Old Testament. And so we're gonna, I'm going to just quickly mention the book of Exodus because we're going to turn to a couple places in the book of Exodus. Just for a foundation so you know, I'm, in this sermon I'm identifying two main sections of the book of Exodus. Exodus is chapter 1 through chapter 18 I call redemption from Egypt. That's the whole story of them coming out of Egypt. Exodus 19, chapter 19 through chapter 40 is talking about a covenant with God. In this sermon I'm going to identify three areas of the Mosaic covenant. There are the commandments which are listed in Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 through 17. There are the judgments which are listed in Exodus 21 chapters 21 through 23. And then there are the ordinances which are listed in Exodus chapter 25 through chapters 31. In the sermon we're going to identify four areas of the ordinance. So you see we're taking the book of Exodus, we're chopping it down into segments, and, each seg- and we're chopping down the segment now of the ordinances. There's the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, which is found in Exodus chapter 25, verses 10 through 22. There's the Tabernacle, which is found in Exodus chapters 25 through chapter 27. And there's the Priesthood, which is found in Exodus chapter 28 through chapter 30. And then, of course, there's the Urim and Thummim, which is in Exodus 28, verse 30. That's a good subject all by itself. Maybe, maybe some have covered here in the past. It was the way God revealed his will. And even though God does not use the Urim and Thummim today to reveal his will, it's always good to look at the history of how God worked with his people in the past. So if you notice, again, for the sake of this sermon, the tabernacle is mentioned in Exodus chapters 25 through chapters 27. And the priesthood is mentioned in Exodus chapters 28 through chapters 30. They're back to back. They work together. They're part of this instruction in the book of Exodus. Now, again, the the people in the main hall have a handout, so that makes it easier for them. Uh, I hope I'm not going too fast with some of those scriptures. But I'm not going to read all these handouts. These are for the individuals, I suppose. I don't know if you have capability of putting handouts on the website. You can always put it up on the website later if people want to download it later, have a podcast later. But again, it would be an interesting study to look at the materials of the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle is found in Exodus chapter 25. Let's look look at Exodus chapter 25. We're not going to read all of it, but let's look at a few. Exodus chapter 25. A couple things I want to point out that are really interesting to me. Okay, this is the section of the tabernacle. Then the eternal God spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. One of the premises we find in the scripture and in the mind of God is this, that God wants cheerful giving. God wants willing giving. He doesn't want doing, doing it grudgingly. You know, as far as, you know, if you, how you look at the subject of tithes and offerings, and when you support giving it to God and, and to a church, and to be used for the gospel, to be used for widows, please do it willingly. God wants a willing heart. Please do your time willingly. If you're the type of person who cleans the building, if you, if you work on the, the duplication of the MP3s or whatever form you use, do it willingly. 
Be a happy person. Don't be a grudging person. Too much times in life, people spend their whole life grudgingly. They get bitter. And they just, they just muddle through, and that's not healthy. It's not, a, bit, a root of bitterness is, is the worst thing for the person who has the root of bitterness. And so you want, to, you want to be doing something willingly, cheerfully, happily. That was the start back when they gathered material for the tabernacle. That's what God wants in his, his church today. We look down verse 9. According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of its furnishings, just so you shall make it. God had a pattern. And so again, while the covenant changed, the pattern's there to learn from the pattern. And to see, he took that Old Testament pattern and he magnified it New Testament, but we also learned. So there's, the, the patterns were important to God in the Old Testament. The patterns are important to God in the New Testament. Now in verses 10 through 22, it talks about the ark. I'm going to focus in on verse 22. Maybe I'll look at it for those put in the scripture. Maybe you come to verse 21. The ark is a box. Okay, it's a box. It's overlaid with gold. It has rings of gold. It has a different, the wood is specified. And then it has a lid. It has a lid on the box. Because boxes have a lid, that's the mercy seat. You put a lid on that box. Verse 21, you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And of course, the book of Hebrews lists exactly what was in, I mean, it lists in here in the Old Testament what was in the ark. But again, it mentions also in the New Testament. But so they put a lid on that. They put the lid. But I want you to notice verse 22 because this is a huge difference between the Old Covenant time and today. And we should thank God that we have this difference. Notice in the Old Covenant how they had to do it. There I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give unto you in the commandment to the children of Israel. There was a meeting place. Now do you all understand the difference right now that you have? What meeting place do you have today? Wherever you are, wherever you want to be, driving in your car, pushing a, a lawnmower, riding on a lawnmower, in your garden, fishing, painting in your house, vacuuming the floor, doing something at the church building. You have access to God all the time. That is the great advantage we have. They did not have that advantage in that system. There was a certain spot in the tabernacle that there was a meeting place with God. Again, that was a good system, as Paul says, but the new system is a superior system because our Savior is more involved. He was involved back then, but he's more involved today in a greater way. So let's I'm turn on the next page. I'm not going to talk about all the mercy seat, the lid. I also have on the handout the different names of the, of the ark. You can look through. It's sometimes called the testimony, sometimes called the covenant of the Lord. The covenant, it's just called different things. We, we notice in, in the book of Hebrews, I'm not going to turn to any of this. Uh, I'm gonna, the next one I'm going to turn to is, uh, uh, well, we'll go back to chapter 25, verse 2 again. But it's a receptacle of different things. But again, it's a meeting place for some servants. Again, I want to read again Matthew, excuse me, Exodus 25, verse 22. There I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are the Ark of the Testimony, 
I want to point that out. So it was a meeting place for some servants to come. Now, we go on to, I'm not going to go through the brief history of the ark, but I think, again, on page three of the handout, you might want to go look through the the brief history of the ark. Again, this is like an outline. You can go in greater detail. Uh, Again, the history can be interesting. It can be helpful. Do you ever run out of things to study in the Bible? I don't. And I, I know sometimes, of course, I do this for a living. I preach for a living. It's a lot of times when people speak, they, they're, not, they're not sure what to talk about. Well, my problem is I have way too many subjects to talk about. And I mean, now some of them would be more interesting to the audience than other things. I get that. And I sometimes pick things more interesting than other th- times. But even the history of the ark is really interesting to go through that. And so if you're a history buff, you will like that kind of study more than those of you who aren't a history buff. I'm going to go over to page four. There, were, there was other furniture in the tabernacle. You know, I'm not going to go to all those, but they had, we already talked about the ark. There's the table, the lampstand, the curtains, the coverings, the boards, the veil, the hangings on the door, the oil for the lamp. All these things were listed there. Again, all those things could be an interesting study for those who have that inclination. But I do want to go to Exodus chapter 28. Remember I told you the ark, excuse me, the, the tabernacle was listed from Exodus chapters 25 through 27. By the way, if, if you want to look at, on again on the handout, there's a, a picture of the ark, a, of the, what the ark looked like. Again, those of you at home could easily Google something. The, the ark, I mean, the, cup, the tabernacle of God, the tabernacle of Israel, the tabernacle of, of the children of Israel, and you can find a, a picture of it and it gives you, and you can, those of you in the hall here, you can go be, well beyond this picture. You can get some things in color, and you can look at it. But again, that way you can look to see where everything was. It was interesting back at the Feast of Tabernacles. Our congregation hosts four feast sites, and we host a feast site in Myrtle Beach. One year in Myrtle Beach, a company came in and set up a, a tabernacle to the exact size of what the original tabernacle was. They were not part of the church of God. I don't remember. I got their card back then. In fact, I even thought about trying to get them to come to one of our feast sites. I couldn't do it alone because it would be too expensive. But I thought, well, if there's other churches that wanted to go in for that week, we could have them set that up. Of course, they would do that for the public as well. That would be good. But if you ever get a chance to go see a, re- a the life-size replica of the tabernacle, it would put things in perspective. Well, by the way, I am going to get up to Kentucky. I guess they have the the life-size of the ark, I mean, of, of the ark Noah's ark. And I want to get up there and see that. But again, if you look in there, you'll see that the tabernacle was a series of tents. Now, later on, another picture on the, on the back was, remember when God went to a building, and then he started building temples. Remember, he did not want to be in tents for the rest of his life. He wanted to be now in a building. For the longest time, he was in tents. And the tent was set up a certain way. All the nations would have the certain spot. And he had had great design on it. And then he said, this is Solomon's temple. And then later on, we're going to look at the the two-pager. This is Herod's temple. And the reason I have that like this is because later on, I want to show you that something happened in that temple And I want you to have a visual of that. Anyway, so we talked about the tabernacle from chapters 25 through 27. 
Now they want to talk about the priesthood. We're over in Exodus chapter 28, the priesthood. And he set up instructions about that. Okay, chapter 28, verse 1. Now take Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister me as a priest. So it was a specific family, Aaron and his sons. He talks about they had certain garments they had to wear. They had to wear the vest. They had to wear the breastplate. They had to wear the Urim and Thummim, which we, we talked about briefly. They had different garments. Chapter 29, verse 1. And this is what you shall do to hallow them for ministering to me as priest. So they had to be consecrated. There was actually a certain way they would be consecrated. I want you to go down to verse 42. Exodus chapter 29, verse 42. Because then it says, This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak with you. Verse 43, and there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle should be sanctified by my glory. Verse 44, so I will sanctify the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. I will also sanctify both Aaron and the sons to minister to me as priests. Remember we talked about that there was a meeting place at the tabernacle? Well, remember now, it was meeting place for the priest. You had to be in that family. You had to be consecrated and designated for that. You're already seeing the advantages of the New Testament. Remember, you have contact with God. We don't, we don't set up a priesthood to do that. Now, by the way, many religions do. Just for those of you who want, I want to be upfront, I'm not a big fan of religion, personally. I'm a big fan of God and Christ and the Bible. I'm a big fan of the body of Christ as it's defined in the Bible. I'm not a big fan of religion because... To me, most of religion has turned into money-making. I was watching the news this morning in my motel room, and they were talking about some of the corruption about the Olympics. And they were giving some of the details of the Olympics, how the fat cats were getting taken care of while the people have running sewage down in the country where they're having the Olympics. And it comes down to this. Whenever there's money involved, and whenever there's people who want power involved, things become corrupted. And so we see how governments become corrupted. We see how big business becomes corrupted. We see how the Olympics become corrupted. And trust me, religion has been corrupted. So I'm not a big fan of religion. I'm a big fan of the body of Christ. I'm a big fan of God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. I'm a big fan of the Bible. I'm a big fan of people trying to live spiritual lives. But I'm not a big fan of people setting up these complicated systems. And again, I, for those of you listening in, please, anything I would say that would seem to strike against your personal religion, don't hold it against this congregation. But I mean, there are certain, there are certain places that have, they set up a clergy to stand in place of God. And you see where they got it from. They actually, that actually comes from two sources. It comes from the Old Testament priesthood. People try to recreate the Old Testament priesthood. And it comes from the monarchy of the King James Bible. Because, you know, Tinsdale was writing a Bible, a Bible for the people. And so thereby they wanted to get on top of that. And so King James authorized a translation of the Bible. And while we love the Bible, we like to use, a, I recommend you use a lot of different Bible translations to try to find the best translation of those specific verse you're looking at. 
the Bible's heavily tainted from a monarchy point of view because it was written at that time. So because of the priesthood system that God set up and then the translation of the monarchy system, you sometimes see religions creating a heavy-handed government structure. Or to my, my point of view, the government structure is God the Father to Jesus Christ, then to the family unit. And then there are people who are helpers of joy, people with gifts who serve the body of Christ just like, <clears throat> just like Christ said. He said, the rulers of the world are, exercise this great authority. But what Jesus said is, it shall not be so among you. We plainly said what we should do. So again, we try to serve, and we try to serve according to the biblical model, the biblical standard. And we're, I'm glad you have servants among you who have, who have been faithfully serving for years and who are committed to continually serve. But again, you have gifts too. And again, I, I see when I watch this congregation, I watch this congregation involve a lot of people. Because again, people contribute. I, I, that's a great thing that's done here. So kudos to you all for getting people involved and letting them use your gifts. A little sidelight, though, I want to say to you. If you have gifts, like Paul had gifts, but Paul had thorns in the flesh. If you, and you may say you think you have one gift or five gifts. Whatever amount of gifts you have is great. But the more gifts you have, the more thorns in the flesh you're going to have. Why is that, by the way? Because if you get filled with pride, you're absolutely no use to God. So if he gives you a gift and all of a sudden your head gets big and no, no longer glorifying God or no longer helping people, you're worthless to God. So God who gives you the gift will also give you a little thorn in the flesh to keep you humble so you can be a humble servant because his body is built up people who are cooperating together. People who are rejoicing with each other, suffering with each other, helping with each other. Anytime you see someone getting the big shot, the big head, that's not of God. That's a person who needs to repent and change. That doesn't, that, you know, we all flow up and down. People go up and down. We have our highs and our lows. And so people can make mistakes of getting filled with themselves. And then we have to, sometimes we can get corrected and sometimes God helps us. But the more, again, I think it's great you have gifts. But understand you'll have thorns in the flesh to help you stay humble so you can be tools in God's hands. So people have set up systems where, you, you know, they can't, they have to confess their sins to each other uh, to a, a clergy system. I heard up here that your pastor read, "We can confess our sins one to another." But that's you making the choice. You're not. You're not. If you choose to talk to someone, by the way, pick someone you trust. Pick someone you trust because if you if you're talking about something, you don't want them blabbing it to the whole world. So that, that's there's there are men in this room here you can trust. There are women in this room you can trust. There are teenagers you can trust, and there's a lot of people you can't trust. Not that even people are mean, it just takes self-control. But again, the scripture that was read about when we pray for each other, we, we don't have to go through this hard, archaic system. It was set up that way. They had to go through the priesthood. They had to go to a certain place. They had to have certain people doing the talking. That was a great system, but it did change. Okay, let's go then to... Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 and 51. And now, I'm going to read the scripture in Matthew, then we're going to go to the book of Hebrews for the rest of the sermon. Something happened when Jesus died. 
a wonderful thing happened after that horrible event that he willingly did. Remember, we do things willingly. He willingly died for us. So we see that in Matthew 27, verses 50 and 51. Jesus, when he had cried out again with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now again, on the, on the handout I have with you there, to, to leave a graphic impression, if you, this, is, this is the temple of the time of Christ. So at the temple of the time of Christ, there's notations underneath. Again, those of you at home can look this up. You can Google it, and you can maybe find even a better rendition. I do have something in the hall for the people to see it. So you see at the bottom has notations. You see where the number one, the Holy of Holies is. Now one thing I will say about the Church of God, including this congregation, you have a pretty good understanding about the Holy of Holies. And that, the reason why you do is because you observe the Day of Atonement every single year. So because you observe the Day of Atonement every year, you know the history of what happened on the Day of Atonement. And you know, so you know the phrase, the Holy of Holies, because that is highly tied into the Day of Atonement. If you happen to be listening and you, you don't know much about the, the, the annual feast days or don't know much about the Day of Atonement, again, I'm sure you can contact this local congregation and they, some way, somehow, you can email them. I'm sure they can help you understand what the Day of Atonement is. And then you'd understand more about the Holy of Holies. But if you look on the, on the handout, Number one is the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant and the giant cherubim were once enshrined. You see number two is the Holy Place. And then of course you see 2A is the Veil, which is actually two giant tapestries hung before the entrance of the Holy of Holies to allow the high priest entry between them without exposing the sacred shrine. It was this veil that was rent upon the death of Jesus. Now one, th one thing we did years ago as a visual on our building, we have a stage, we have curtains. And on the Day of Atonement, I parted the, the, the curtains there for a little bit. And then I invited a senior citizen to come up to the stage. I invited a middle-aged person to come up to the stage. Some of them were men, some of them were women, to also make that point. I invited a teenager up, and I invited a little child up. And I was explaining the Day of Atonement, that I said, please walk into the Holy of Holies. Our, our building is not the Holy of Holies. It was, it was an analogy to try to make the point. They had access to the Holy of Holies, which they would not have had under the Old Covenant. Now, we don't look for a tabernacle. We don't look for a building. You know, sometimes people say, do you think this is the tabernacle or the, the temple? No, this is a your building is a tool. You use your tool for weekly services. You come together to learn together. You come together to serve together. And you have this wonderful tool, and it's a very nice building. You've had it for a long time. And many of the, by the way, many of the places I go have their own church buildings. And that's, again, that may be typical of many denominations. That has not been typical among churches of God. But more and more congregations are building their own buildings, and we use it as a, not only a chance to come together to learn together, but we get a chance to serve together. And I, you have such a wonderful tool here. But again, so... Now, you know, here we got, the, the, we, we did that example because that temple, there was, a, there was a curtain that was ripped. It was opening access to you'd have access to God, to the heavenly throne. You no longer have to go to a special tabernacle. 
You no longer have to have a certain family that's a priesthood. You don't have to have that anymore. Again, you know that, so that's not new to you. But let's go to the book of Hebrews, and let's notice some lessons from the book of Hebrews. Now, remember I said if you, when you talk about the tabernacle, you talk about the priesthood. When you talk about the priesthood, you talk about the tabernacle. Well, the book of Exodus said the tabernacle information first, then talked about the priesthood. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 17, it talks about the priesthood first, then goes to the tabernacle. They're interconnected. They have been and they will be. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. I've got to get to the right book. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Verse 18. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. You and I have a high priest, Jesus Christ. And again, for those of you just passing through and hitting on this website today, this congregation is very Christ-based. They love God the Father, and they love Jesus Christ as their Savior. They love the fact that he is their high priest, and he is also your high priest. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. He is our apostle. He is our high priest. I am not looking to any man to be an apostle. I am not looking for any, any man to be a high priest. I'm not looking for any woman to be an apostle. I'm not looking for any woman to be a high priest. He is my high priest. He is my apostle. Chapter 4, verses 14 and 15 of Hebrews. Chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's a little Christian living part there too. What should we do because of this information? We should go boldly to the throne of grace. We should have a great relationship with our Father in heaven. We should have a great relationship with our Savior. And when you're suffering trials, as you may be suffering personal trials, as you watch our nation suffering, our nation suffering, I am, I am in, I'm mourning the death of our nation. Our nation is slowly dying. Will, will there be a revival? Maybe. There might be a revival. But there may not be. We may end up in the, you know, the, the Middle East has come to all of the land. The Middle East has come to Germany, has had all, all sorts of problems. A lot of raping going on over there by some of the immigrants. France has a huge problem. The, the turmoil of the Middle East is coming around the world. And we have our own problems now. And again, sooner or later, the problems will become bigger. We have no promises that we'll have all this peace forever. We've enjoyed peace for a long time. Maybe our land will end up like the time of Christ when the disciples had to deal with a Roman occupation. Never know. That we, may, we don't have any promises. We've not been promised that we'll never have an occupation. And maybe the occupation will be through terrorism as opposed to a nation just taking us over. In one way, it's easier to fight a nation. It's harder to fight terrorists who have no physical nation that can be 
uh, attacked. I'm talking from a, a national point of view. I, I mourn watching the death of our nation. I, I mourn the choices we have for president. I, I mourn what our Congress and our Supreme Court and our executive branch is regularly doing. I, I try to keep up with the news, but I cannot watch too much of it because, first of all, they just grind it to powder. They just, they just beat it down. And second of all, the news business is in the business of making money anyway. So you have to understand, they're, they're who look at the profit line. So they're going to push stories that give them profit, whether or not it's the most important story, whether it's the most balanced story. All of, the, all of these stations are in the market for profit. And don't think any of the stations are holy or righteous. They're all in the margin for profit. And so I try to keep up with it, but I don't spend hours and hours watching it over and over and over and over again because they, they, they talk about things and they break it down in ways that I don't need to spend my time doing that. I, I could spend my time doing other things. I'm not going to go through Hebrews 5, which talks about the priesthood of Melchizedek. I'm not going to go through Hebrews 7, which talks about the priesthood of Melchizedek. But remember, this is talking about the priesthood. But I want to read Hebrews 8, verses 1 and 2. I really like this. You know, when speakers, when, when people have been taught to speak in, the, in the, the church of God, a lot of times they've been talked about the phrase, a specific purpose statement. The specific purpose statement is try to give direction of where you're going. Try to let people know where you're going. Well, the book of Hebrews does that, not so much at the beginning. He does it halfway in the middle. And basically what he says is, in case you're not getting what I'm saying, let me tell it to you clearly. So notice this is clearly what the book of Hebrews is about. Hebrews 8 verses 1 and 2. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. If you're not getting it, let me say it very succinctly. Let me say it as clearly as I possibly can say it. So if there's any arguments about the book of Hebrews, chapters eight verses one, chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 helps make it very clear. This is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of, Mer of the majesty in the heavens. He is a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. Surprise, surprise, the priesthood and the tabernacle are connected. Because when you talk about the priesthood, you talk about the tabernacle. When you talk about the tabernacle, you talk about the priesthood. They are totally connected. And what we find out is, Christ is both the high priest and the tabernacle. He is the sacrifice. He, he, he is the offering. When you consider all the analogies of the old covenant system, Christ came to reflect all that in a greater way, in a more powerful way. But in case, if you're reading the book of Hebrews and getting confused, he says, by the way, this is what we're talking about. And in verses 3 through 5, he says, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it's necessary that this one also have something to offer. For he, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since they were priests who offered the gifts according to the law. He could not have been a priest in the old covenant system because he wasn't of the right family. Being of the right family is no longer important in the new covenant system. He is the priest. That, who served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. 
For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So we learn from the pattern of the old covenant. We see how that magnified and reflected in the new covenant. And so now we're going to move on to the tabernacle. The tabernacle is mentioned a lot in chapter 9. And again, the tabernacle. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle is called the holiest of all. And in the holy of holies was the golden altar of incense, the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which was the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded was there, the tablets of the covenant was there, that were there, and above it was the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Basically what he's saying is, I can't describe it well enough. And the book of Hebrews, I'm glad the book of Hebrews is there because it helps tie in a lot of those things. But the author of the book of Hebrews says, I can't do it justice. I'm doing my best to try to explain it to you, but I really can't explain it to you like we're going to see it in great glory someday. Verse 6. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. Verse 7. But into the second part of the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. Remember we said that was the Day of Atonement. That's why you're familiar with that because many of the lessons of the holy days help show us what's going on. And that happened on that day. Let's drop down to verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 9. But Christ came as high priest of good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation. Verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Verse 13 and 14, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, if that sanctifies the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, how much more should it purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So again, what I've done so far is given you that foundation of the book of Exodus, showed you how the book of Hebrews ties, continues that theme of the tabernacle and priesthood, the priesthood and tabernacle. They work together. Now, I'm coming to the most important part of the sermon to me. I'm coming to the Christian living. Having ref- refreshed your memory of, on that, or maybe some maybe learned something from that, what does it matter to what you do today? So I have the word therefore, because of this information, and I don't want you to go away necessarily having new information. I'm not opposed to you having new information. But I really want this information to help your life. I want this information to help your marriage. I want this information to help your parenting. I want this information to help you on the job. I want this information to help you as you reflect the gospel of Christ. I want this information to help you in your neighborhood. Because the church of God is not about head knowledge. I know there are parts of people in the church of God who think they've got the best knowledge. And, and they, they, knowledge is everything to them. 
But the church of God is following the example of Christ, who had the knowledge, but put it into practice. So we're going to talk about the therefore, because of the priesthood, because of the tabernacle. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. And you're going to notice the word, even in the English translation, the word therefore. Therefore, brethren, since I've given you all this information, the writer says, therefore, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated through us, through the veil, that is, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. So how, how well are you stirring people up to good works? How much are you a good influence on good works? Or are you a master of the put-down? Are you a master of the critical? Are you a master of showing people where they're wrong? Are you a master of making people feel bad? Are you a master of making people feel low? Oh, you know so much, so you just, you got to show them how much you know and, and how, what a bad job they're doing. Certainly parents have to show their kids where they're doing wrong. Certainly bosses have to show where their kids are doing wrong. But married couples have to find ways to help each other without, you don't, you don't treat your spouse like you do your children. You don't treat your spouse like you do your, your people under you. You lovingly find ways to melt together because you're trying to provoke to love and good works. And we try to meet together. You meet together some, some Tuesday nights for a Bible study I saw, and you use the Sabbath to come together. Let me tell you something that I believe you're like our congregation in. Some congregations come together, and their religion is Sabbath service. Their jobs on Sabbath service, what they do at church, that's their religion. That's not our congregation, and I don't believe that's your congregation. We come to church to recharge batteries. You come here to get your batteries recharged, then you go out and live your religion. If your religion is only what you do at church, well, we're missing both. We come to church, now we, we're glad people serve at church, because we help each other, we pull together. But you come here to get your batteries recharged from the speaking, from the fellowship, sometimes from the potlucks. That's why we have guest speakers, and that's why, again, I'd love some of your guys coming down to be guest speakers, because it just you can help us to get recharged. You're passing, that's why you came down with your music. You would recharge us. And when you'd sing your beautiful music, our folks would go out, and they'd live their religion, try to be a better husband, try to be a better job, try to reflect Christ in every way. This is not your religion today. This is you coming together on a day of worship, a day of fellowship, to get your batteries recharged to go out and do Let's look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith, the faith chapter. These all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off. They were assured of them. They embraced them. They confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And those that say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had been called to mind that country from which they had come, come out, 
they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better country, a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Because of the details of the tabernacle, because of the details of the priesthood that have been brought to the New Testament and magnified, we now look to that heavenly city and that should change our life. Chapter 12, beginning verse 1. Therefore, many therefores in here. These therefores are because of the information of the tabernacle and the priesthood. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, lay aside the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostilities from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Rather, we get tired sometimes. We look to him as our example. We look to him what his source of strength was, and we call upon that source of strength. We don't go to a tent. We don't go to a temple. We don't have some high priest go in our place. You go wherever you are, as often as you want, by yourself. Or you can have sometimes group prayers with people. Again, if you choose to have group prayers, make, try to all of you stay humble and just serve each other as you do something in group. But you get contact with that throne in heaven. Verse 4, you have not yet resisted the bloodshed, striving against sin. And then it talks about verses 5 through 11. I'm not going to look at that right now. Which talks about receiving correction. Because God will correct us in love. And, you know, I love listening for the voice of God. I heard the first speaker talk about the still, small voice. I have a sermon I give entitled The Still, Small Voice. It's one of my sermons I love to give. Because people love to see the earthquakes. And they love to see the tornadoes. And they love to see this and power. And in the, in the case of Elijah, sometimes God speaks through the earthquake. Sometimes God speaks through the tornado or hurricane. In the case of Elijah, he spoke through the still, small voice. And I'm always listening for that still, small voice. And I will tell you this. And I told you earlier about how I think God keeps telling me to slow down. Because it's like he's my dad. I view God as my spiritual dad, a perfect dad. I'm not a perfect dad. I, I didn't have perfect parents. I don't, you're not perfect parents. But God is a perfect dad. And I, love, I look at everything through that paradigm of God as a perfect dad. And that's why I can understand his mercy. Because even though I can disappoint him, just, don't our children disappoint us at times? You still love them, don't you? Don't you work your best to try to reach them? Well, God, he's, he's better than us. Sometimes when I'm crazy and stupid, he looks down at me and says, Dave, your recovery's going really, really well. But you moron, you've got to make sure you slow down. So I'm going to keep this person tell you, I'm going to have that person tell you, I'm going to have this person tell you, I'm going to have that person tell you, because he loves me. He loves me. And so, let me tell you, listen, listen to the voice of God. I don't hear voices. I, I don't I have voices. But I hear, I hear wisdom. I hear wisdom. And let me tell you something I'll pass on to you. You know some of the greatest voices of God come from? Strangers. Let's think that through a second. Why is that? Why do the voices of God come from strangers? Well, see, because 
if, uh, if Lawrence Gregory or Steve Andrews says something to me, I could be tempted to say, hmm, I wonder why they said that. Did I offend them a couple years ago? Did I say something to them, made them upset, and that's why they said that to me? That's human nature, right? But if a stranger comes up to me, or I'll tell you some of the best are little children. Little children come up and say, your head's bald. <laughs> well, thank you very much. <laughs> they just blurt it out. They're not thinking about what you're going to think of me. This little child just going to say what's... So when a stranger comes up, it's like, hmm. They, I don't know what agenda they have. That just seems to make a lot of sense, what they said. So listen to voice, listen to wisdom. And yes, get it from people you know too. Because hopefully, hopefully we're not going to be too hard on each other. But don't be afraid. The point is don't be afraid to listen to a stranger who comes up and says, you know, I think you ought to consider such and such. You know, if it's, if you try the spirit, you test it biblically, and if it's right from God, you'll know. But don't, don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of information. But make sure, you know, compare it back to the Bible for sure. But don't be afraid of it. Because again, the Bible makes sense. To me, God makes sense in most situations. Say, wait, wait a second. Let me explain why I say that. When the children of Israel left Egypt, the way they went did not make sense. That made sense in the ultimate plan of God. But the route they went did not make sense. Because he already knew about parting through the sea. So it made sense in the plan of God. So I bring up that example to say, sometimes the way you're going God's way, I think most of the time it makes perfect sense. And if something's happened that doesn't make sense, we go back to God and say, okay, just like the children of Israel, you knew what you were doing. It didn't make sense to them. I'm trusting you to still help me through this because this is not making sense to me. But I'm saying I, I believe that's the exception. I think in the rule, God's way primarily makes sense. You see what I'm saying? You can look at certain examples in the Bible where they, you know, when, when Abraham was supposed to kill his son, that didn't make any sense. Thankfully, he didn't have to do it. So sometimes they see things that didn't make sense, but it's like, really? But I say most of the time, God's way makes perfect sense. Okay, I do want to quickly mention again, because uh, of time here. Verse 15. Looking diligently, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, cause trouble. Please, brethren, do not let bitterness take root in your heart. Do not let bitterness take root in your life. Good advice earlier about don't let the sun go down in your wrath. I had a situation recently where uh, someone was mad at me, and they were... People were talking about it, and uh, they, they talked about some, some guy had really chewed me out, and uh, it, it was actually a business. It was not a church marriage. Someone chewed me out, and I couldn't remember it at all because my son said, well, you put them in your place after they chewed you out. And I explained to them, well, because I got it out of my system, I forgot it completely. But the thing was, uh, I, I firmly believe don't let the sun go down your wrath. I firmly believe, get to things quickly. Get them out of your system because the things stay in your system. You know, most people that you're mad at, if you're, if you're holding grudges, they either don't know you exist 
or they've long since forgotten what you're worried about. They're worried about making a living. They're worrying about getting different tires for their car. They're worried what they're going to do in retirement. And you're stewing and stewing and stewing of what that conversation you had five years ago, 20 years ago, whatever. And there's a good chance they've long since forgotten it because bitterness hurts us. And by the way, forgiveness really doesn't help the other person so much. It occasionally helps the other person. When you forgive others, it helps us. So anyway, please do not let, because of the tabernacle, because of the priesthood, please do not let the bitterness run in your heart. Well, I'm going to conclude with one scripture. I went through this pretty fast, but uh, I, I, I want to make sure I end up somewhat time you frame. They told me it's end before three. And I'm going to end well before three. Sorry. Sorry about if it's longer than you were anticipated. Hebrews 13, verse 15. Another therefore. Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to God. I would encourage you to refresh your memory about the tabernacle and priesthood. I would encourage you to refresh your memory about the book of Hebrews. When it talks about how it applies to your life today. And please focus on the words therefore. These beautiful Christian living words. And there's much good advice. We'll conclude with that verse in verse 15. That hopefully you'll give praise to God. That you'll give thanks to God. That you'll involve him in your life. Even in the midst of a trial. You remember the book of Job had the hedge about Job. Thank God every day for that hedge. And thank, especially when they ask for that hedge to be, thank God for the hedge, is right in the middle of the trial. Because God can pull that hedge back if he wants to work something in your life. So when you think things are bad, thank God right then and there that he's kept the hedge around that it hasn't gotten worse. And maybe he'll have mercy and push the head closer again. And he, will, he gives us ways of escape. He does bless us. He does help us. You know it. You've lived this way a long time. You've loved God's blessings, and you've even learned to appreciate some of the trials. But pr- please remember, when you look at this material in the Bible, it can help you have a good life. I hope you'll remember that this material can help you. And I'm talking about the tabernacle and the priesthood.